believe that this is our God-ordained thing because I sat down with this gentleman uh, before service this morning and uh, just to hear his heart, his excitement, and the way that God has prepared him to bring this message is a God thing. There's no other way to explain it, that this is going to um, really bless you because God has done some incredible things in his life that, to prepare him to bring us this specific message for today. So I hope your heart is open and ready and uh, you're going to be ready to receive this gentleman who's with us today is a friend of Pastor Ben's. He is in a group called the John 17 Group. And just to give you a little history about what that is, is the John 17 Group is a group of pastors who get together and support one another, which is extremely great because they can minister to one another. It's a, it's a safe place they can go and uh, just say, hey, you know, I'm going through this. And they're like, yeah, I've done that before too. And, you know, this is what helped me. It, it just really encouraged and strengthened each other up in Christ, which is awesome. And uh, so it's a, a cool place. So this uh, particular gentleman knows Pastor Ben very well, and Pastor knows him, and uh, uh, Pastor wants to give you the best, and I believe he had done that this morning. And so I'm excited, and it is my privilege to welcome Pastor Wally to the stage to bring us this word. Let's welcome Pastor Wally together as he comes. Well, it's great to be with you guys. Uh, it's, it's a privilege, and I'm honored to get to share with you and also want to very much thank you, and you may or may not know, but um, each month, uh, our church, Frontport Church, Front Porch Church, we receive a gift from you all uh, to support us in evangelism and where we are. Our facility is located a few blocks from downtown, and specifically what we receive from you, we put into reaching out to the youth, uh, the teens in the neighborhood that kind of surrounds us, and so um, I just want to say thank you because it, it matters, uh, and it means something to us. Uh, that you believe in what we're doing, but also believe in reaching out and sharing Christ uh, with the left out, the look down, and the least of these, and we, we do everything we can to do that. So, um, you know, where we're located, we, we talk about uh, uh, our church being kind of a mishmash of humanity, and so we have all sorts of walks of life uh, that gather with us, and it's, and it's beautiful. Uh, we are we bought uh, the facility that used to be Olivet Evangelical Free, which is now kind of behind you all. It's their old facility on Southern. And so we moved into that um, with the goal to connect and reach uh, the local neighborhood and beyond. So that's kind of what we're up to. And me being here this morning is uh, culturally just made sense for us. Our gathering now is on Saturday evening. So we meet at 5 p.m. Does it make sense kind of in our context as we kind of looked into it? So that's one of the reasons I can be here this morning as we met last night, gathered, and, um, and I got to teach on. We're going through right now the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And so uh, we did that, and then I get to come and be here this morning. And when I, uh, when I chatted with Pastor Ben, and he said, hey, would you come and teach? I said, great. Do I get to teach on whatever I want? And he said, no, we're in a series on 1 Timothy. So let me give you your text. We're in 1 Timothy. You'll have chapter 2, verse 8 through the end of the chapter, I believe it is, is 15. And I'm thinking, wow, that sounds really familiar. What is that? What is that? And then I open it up, and I'm like, what? And I said, wow. I said, really, Ben? And I said, well, we probably should talk through, like, what this looks like. This is a loaded text. And he's like, no, no, I trust you. And we talked through it, and he's like, yes, woo, go for it. Um, so it's kind of funny. But I say that because this text I have conversations, I would say almost weekly, uh, that I have with people that they reference this text, and it's been used far too often to uh, oppress and suppress women. And so it's often the go-to text for that. So I'm looking forward to diving into that 
Um, but to get there, to even kind of carve uh, an idea of where we're starting, uh, I want to do something a little silly, a little fun, uh, and then we'll move to why it is. Uh, so we have some results uh, from a religious school, I'll just say that, a religious school, and they took tests on the Bible as they'd been studying it. And so these are the actual answers. We actually had, like, the first gathering, the first service, it was funny. They'd kind of corrected some of the mistakes that are on there, but the point is to have the mistakes in there. So it's kind of extra funny, like, no, actually, it's this. So I just want to show you some tests, that some answers kids put on a test to biblical questions, and, and we'll look at them. The first one is this one. The first commandment was when Eve told Adam to eat the apple. So some students thought that. Whoops. Uh, the seventh commandment is thou shall not admit adultery. Um, w- well, whoopsie-daisy. Uh, next one. Moses died before he ever reached Canada. Then Joshua led the Hebrews in the Battle of Jericho. N- uh, nope. No, I don't. Canada is in the Bible. I missed that part. The greatest miracle in the Bible is when Joshua told his son to stand still and he obeyed him. Close. That one's close, but this, it's a little off. Um, when Mary heard she was the mother of Jesus, she sang the Magna Carta. And so, <laughs> chronology is off. We've got some, all, we've a little, little broken with this one. Christians have only one spouse. This is called monotony. (laughs) Now, I'm guessing and going to say that the person who answered this one may have been also the one that said that the seventh commandment is not admitting adultery. So they they maybe have been the same kid (laughs) who did that. But this is what happens when, well, one, when we don't know, but when we just think and we slam texts together, we kind of mash history together and we don't know exactly what's going on and then we put this out, this happens actually an awful lot when it comes to the scriptures. I I think it says or I quote something and you go, that's not, that's a bumper sticker, but it's not the text and whoa. Um, And so Ben Witherington III, um, if you want to be a scholar, he's a New Testament, brilliant New Testament scholar, it's always good to be a third or a second or a fourth. Uh, So now this morning I'm Pastor Wally Harrison, the first I'll go with the fifth. But uh, he's a New Testament scholar. He says, and this is important, a text without context, a biblical text without context, is just a pretext for making it say anything one wants. A text without context is just a pretext for making it say anything one wants. Now I'll go to the ridiculous, and then we're jumping into the text. Ridiculous would be the TV show Three's Company. If you're old, or old enough to remember this ridiculous show, this thing was built on the lack of context. A character would walk into the room, and there would be other characters maybe in another room, and th- the character that walks in doesn't understand what's going on in the other room, and they're fixing a toilet. And they walk in and just hear them, and they're thinking, oh, no, this is a mess, and they think something else is going on. And it created very much a success and the chaos of the show that was supposed to be hilarious and funny, but it was all about taking one of the characters out of context, and then it created uh, chaos. So that's just the ridiculous. I thought that's where my um, monkey mind goes sometimes when I think of things. Um, But we begin with the understanding 
that the Bible was written by real people in real places in a real time. So the different letters, poems, songs, and gospels were written to other real people in real places in a real time. The way I would say this is the Bible was not written to us, it was written for us. The Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. We ask the question, why did they feel the need to write this down? Why did God ask them to write this down? What is this that we can gain for sure? But it was written by real people to other real people, and context is everything. So we jump in. This text that we're in, 1 Timothy, what we have is, uh, we'll throw the map up. This actually is written to a gentleman named Timothy. He was the pastor by Pastor Paul, if you will, and, and he was in Ephesus. And so Ephesus is a port city. Now, Paul, on his missionary journeys, he spent three years in Ephesus, started a church in Ephesus. And Paul, being in Ephesus for three years, was the longest stay he had in any of his missionary journeys in one place, Ephesus. And then when he was uh, put in jail, Timothy took over the pastorate in Ephesus. And now Paul is writing to him, to him pastoring that church. He knows what's going on. So what takes place in Ephesus shapes a significant piece of this letter and then beyond. Ephesus is a major piece of the New Testament, major piece. And so um, you have it. It's a port city. And uh, so understanding that this is the letter written from Paul to Timothy there, we jump into the letter and then we'll begin to pick through uh, what this city was like, what they're surrounded by, and what Paul is speaking into. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. It says, Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Now, first off, he is saying this because just the text before you had, before this, you had Paul saying, I am supposed to bring, I'm called by God to bring a word to the Gentiles. This is a big deal. Because before it was just the Jews, now it's the Jews and the Gentiles, and Paul is telling them then, do not be divided. You are to be one under God. So don't be fighting and arguing about you can't receive this, you can't, you're a Gentile. He's saying, so one, there's the anger and disputing as in let's be one in Christ, as Paul speaks about it elsewhere. The wall of hostility has been torn down. But also, this is a reference back to the Exodus. So his Jewish people that hear this would be referencing what did they do in the Exodus when they kept going off course in the desert? They would, they would complain, and they would argue, and they would fight, and they would whine, and then they would go off course because of it. So he's reminding them, remember how your people went off course with grumbling and complaining and arguing. Don't do that. Like, learn from their mistakes. So he's getting at a couple of things. Now, understanding Ephesus. In the first century, the city was somewhere 250,000 plus people in this population. It can say up to 400,000 people. Ephesus in the first century at the time of this writing became the capital city to the Roman Empire in Asia Minor, what we know as Turkey. So it became the capital, it usurped Pergamum as the capital during this writing uh, for the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire ruled the way, and this is a big deal. Uh, I, had, I was privileged to go on a biblical studies trip this past winter to Turkey. 
and I got to walk the sites of these churches, and we studied these. And so I walked Ephesus, and so we'll look at some pictures of Ephesus to help shape things as well. And so studying this, understanding the culture then, and the Roman Empire and how they infiltrated and ruled the land. And Ephesus was the capital, so it was the home in many ways of emperor worship. The Roman emperor at the time of this writing was Nero. Now Nero, if you have some remembrance of history, Nero was a bad, bad dude. Bad guy. Now, in to put it into even context, Nero was one of two Roman emperors, the other one being Domitian, who was the emperor during the time of the writing of John when he wrote Revelation, the Gospel of John, for second and third John. Domitian was the emperor. Domitian and Nero were what was put damnatio memorialia, damnatio memorialia, which is the damnation from memory. And so the Roman Empire even said, Nero and Domitian are so wicked, we erase them from our history. You're that bad. And if you are that bad in the Roman Empire, you're bad. So he is the emperor at the time, and so emperor worship is big. So if we go to um, go into Ephesus, what we have here is a picture of a triple gate. This is called the emperor's gate. It's a triple gate. And so this was dedicated to the emperor Augustus, Caesar Augustus, who kind of launched the Roman Empire in many ways. So on the other side of this gate is the Agora. It's the marketplace. And being that this is a port city, Ephesus was the gateway from the east to the west. If you want to do any trade, any silks, any spices, anything, it goes through Ephesus. a major trade city. And so you needed to get into the Agora and sell your stuff. That's where you would go and sell your stuff to provide for your family. You would go and buy there so you could provide for your family. But the only way to get in the Agora is to go through the triple gate. And to go through the triple gate, you had to offer incense or worship the emperor. If you don't offer incense, if you don't worship the emperor, you don't get a mark, a stain on your hand or a mark on your forehead that says you've worshipped him, you may come in. If you don't do it, you don't come in. So the question for Christians, followers of the way in the first century is, do you take the mark of the beast? You may find that somewhere in Revelation. They referred to the emperor as the beast. At least John did in his apocalyptic, subversive language. Do you take the mark of the beast? Do you bow down and worship the emperor? But what if you don't? How do you provide for your family? How am I going to sell my stuff if I can't go in the agora? Very dicey things that they had to deal with. So also Ephesus, and which is a big deal and shapes it, it is the Neochorus, which is the worship headquarters of the goddess Artemis. Artemis' cult was massive. If you know, the Artemis uh, temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was huge, 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 huge. And so her birthplace was in Ephesus, known in Ephesus, and this is her worship headquarters. And if you're reading in Acts chapter 19, you'll see that a gentleman comes forth and says, this Paul, this Apostle Paul and his followers are stirring up people and saying there is only one God, which means that he is saying Artemis is not God. And, and this guy makes statues and makes things and makes his entire livelihood selling Artemis artifacts. And the city is built around this, and they make a whole trade of it the worship of Artemis. And so they said, he's saying this, we need to kill him. 
So in Acts 19, you read about a riot in Ephesus that moved from about this area here, right down the Curate Street, and we go to the next picture, and you have the theater. Seats about 25,000 or more. And so there's a riot in Acts 19 where they rush the theater, pile into this thing, and being on the street, walking it and going, I can't imagine thousands upon thousands of people smashing into this theater, and they all start chanting, as you can read in Acts 19, great is the goddess Artemis. Great is the goddess Artemis. And they try and take some of Paul's followers, and they're like, we need to kill them. And Paul, in the meantime, is trying to get in the theater. Look at all these people. I can tell them about Christ. And actually, some of the Pharisees are saying, no, 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 you can't go in. They will tear you to shreds, Paul. And they hold him back. All built around Artemis and that they worship this Artemis. And someone is speaking out and saying there's only one God, and it's not Artemis. So Artemis's cult teachings teach women to be disrespectful to men. They say, women, you are powerful. You do not have to respect men. You can make your own wealth if you are wealthy. If you're married to a man and he doesn't pay you the attention you want, you may go get all the attention you would like from others. In the Roman Empire, in Asia Minor, if you are married and you have sex with someone who is not married, it's not considered adultery. And so wealthy women would often have sex slaves, and they would do this, and it was, it was fine according to the Artemis cult. The other thing that they would teach is not to respect men. They would teach, you can get up and say whatever you learn, these cult teachings, these pagan teachings, and then you teach younger women. That's what you are to do. Teach them in the philosophies and the sorceries of the day. That's what you do. Now, the wealthy homes, the next picture, um, if we head down, this is what is Curate's Street, the main street in Ephesus. And so actually up top, the harbor, the water would come right up to it in the first century, and now it's about five miles removed. But you head down the street, if you look to your left, that kind of white canopy, those have been excavated in what we would know as like a gated community, a subdivision, a really wealthy community in Ephesus, and it kind of shaped things, and Paul would very much be writing to them, to this wealthy group, because what they were all about, your status is found in your wealth and how you dress, in how you style your hair, how you look. This is how you get attention. You conquer this way through pomp and prestige. And the Artemis cult taught this. Now, there's an advertisement on the street in front of the uh, emperor's gate. And so if we go to the next picture. Oh, sorry, we're going to go in the houses. So we went, sorry, the wealthy houses. What you can see is some of the mosaics. This isn't paint. You go in the wealthy houses, these are stunning. And so you have, um, these are all little mosaics at pictures. Next slide. And then you have like a his and hers uh, floor. But this is all done in mosaics. It was unbelievable in the time and money they put into their homes. Next picture. Uh, this is like a banquet hall in a house, in a single house, in a wealthy place. And they would do symposiums. We won't get into it too much here. Uh, time's sake and keeping it PG-13. Symposium is basically a feast and a sex party, and it was just unbelievable. They were hosted oftentimes in the wealthy homes. They would have these symposiums. And so they would do it in like a banquet center. This would be surrounded with couches, and they would eat, and then they would do other things. Uh, and so then the next picture. Uh, this is on the street in Ephesus. It's on the street. What you see is a foot 
and then up above that is supposed to be female genitalia. This is first century advertising. What this is is saying this way to the brothel. This way to the brothel. And so it's advertising now. To give us some sense of what it looks like, we were, we were in a brothel, but what it, what it is is in Pompeii, a city of 6,000, a city of 6,000, they've, through excavating, found, set, um, they found 40, 41 brothels in Pompeii, population 6,000. So if we go on the low end for Ephesus, 250,000, that would be 1,700 brothels in Ephesus that'd be there. Promiscuity, doing whatever you want, was huge a part of Artemis' cult. Also, Artemis is the goddess of the hunt, so provision. Artemis was the goddess of fertility. If you wanted to have babies, you pray to Artemis. When you have babies, you pray for a healthy baby, that goes to Artemis. When your kids are being raised and you want them to be healthy, you pray to Artemis. She was the goddess of fertility. A lot of her statues are covered in eggs. She's, she's covered in eggs in the temp in the statues because she is the goddess of fertility. This is huge, and it shapes all of Ephesus. So now we jump into our text with some context, all right? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 then. So we jump in. Verse 9 says, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship who? God. Now, here's what it is. Listen, your worth, your value, your status is found in character shaped by God. Service in worship to God. You want to dress nice? Wonderful. But your status and your value and how you get ahead in society is not by how you look, not by who you can conquer, not that you can seduce these men, not that way. Yours is found in your character and your deeds shaped by Christ, is what Paul is saying to them. Very countercultural in that city. Very, very countercultural. So, if it's pomp and prestige which is surrounding them, that is how you get the gods on your side is pomp and prestige and hairstyles, and that's how you grow in status. What I would say, and I would argue, that pomp and prestige can often get in the way of people experiencing God. True story. True story about a church in the South. A gentleman walks in one Sunday morning. This church is high church. A lot of people are dressed quite well. And so a gentleman walks in, he's homeless. The clothes on his back are the only clothes he has. He comes in carrying two bags. He comes and sits in the front row. He feels the eyes looking at him, and he knows he's not welcome. The pastor runs down and meets him and says, excuse me, sir, are you new here? He said, yes, I am. I come to worship Jesus. I've never been here before, but I just want to worship Jesus. The pastor says, oh, okay, good. Here's what I need you to do. When you leave here this week, I want you to pray to God and ask him what he thinks you should wear when you are in the house of God, how you should dress. Will you do that? The gentleman says, sure. So he leaves. He comes back the next week. He walks in with bags in his hand, the clothes on his back, and he sits in the front row. The pastor runs down to him, and he says, 
were you not here last week? I said, I was. Did I ask you to do something? You did. Did you do it? I said, I did. I asked God what he thinks I should wear when I'm in this church. And he answered me. God said, I don't know because I've never been in that church before. Ouch. Ouch. But the point being, sometimes we create barriers with pomp and prestige and saying this is how I'm going to be, and this is the only way in which you can garner attention and grow in status can be a huge barrier. When God says, I permit all to come to me. So we move on. Verse 11, a woman or wife, as it would be translated as well, uh, a woman or wife should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. How crucial is context here? If you have ever been, if you have ever been shamed, suppressed, oppressed, stuck in the corner with this text saying, see, you're told to zip your mouth, I apologize to you this morning because that is not what is going on. First, first, in this text, the way it would be interpreted in verse 12 where it says, I do not, it says, I do not now, the rhetoric, the Greek rhetoric can be Translated, I do not now permit a woman to teach. Why? Because Paul's saying the women that you have teaching are running around learning from this pagan Artemis, and they're going up there and they're giving all sorts of sorceries and divinity, these, all these divinations, and you need to, Timothy, pastor well and shut that stuff down in my church, God's church. This is what this, he's not writing to just anyone. He's writing to this church and saying we will not have Women speaking foolishness in our church. Context is everything. Men were preoccupied trying to fight off the sorcery and pagan teachings around them. In this context, they were really busy doing this, and they were neglecting their wives and the women because they're fighting these off, which we read about in Acts chapter 19. Again, this is Paul in Ephesus. And we read what it says in Acts chapter 19, and this helps us. So this is what the, the men are up to, if we can throw that on the screen. It says, a number, and this is in Ephesus, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, which would be $2 million, whoa, in the first century. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So there are people in Ephesus who have been practicing these sorceries and pagan teachings, and then they're coming to Christ, and what do they do? We need to get rid of this stuff. Now, we would say that like $2 million, we could sell it and fund the church. No, 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 no. They don't want this stuff going any further. These teachings need to be shut down. So we burn them, and they destroyed them. So the, the men are making sure that this is taking place, and we're getting rid of of all the stuff that has distracted us and taken us off course. And in the midst of that, women then are learning these pagan teachings and they're chattering to the younger women and to the other women. And Paul is saying, 
if that was me, Timothy, that would not happen in my church. So I suggest you lead well and make sure that those things are not being taught and you need to shut them down. Context is everything. The reference to Adam and Eve. Now, oftentimes when this text is left out, they just stop, right? Women are supposed to sit in the corner and be quiet. But the text continues and says this whole Adam and Eve reference, right? And And a lot of times, if they do touch on it, they say, see, Eve was the one who sinned, and now women are once again creating a mess. Nope. Because the men in Ephesus were neglecting their wives or sitting idly by, and Paul brings up Adam and Eve, and, Ad, and Eve is the one who sinned. Where was Adam when Eve sinned? Standing right next to him with his mouth shut. This is actually a dig or a challenge to men. Men, when you sit idly by and let women do things they ought not to do, you're going to get a kick in the pants. Paul's calling out the men. Just like Adam stood idly by when Eve did this, so the men in Ephesus are standing idly by while women are teaching foreign gods and pagan philosophies. So it's a very different thing. This is actually challenging men. Paul is saying, I'd never let a, a woman who is entangled in pagan practices and doctrines speak up in my church. Timothy, lead well in shutting that garbage down and then instruct the guys to step up and lead their wives in Christ. Husbands, men, today, when you lead well, when you lead well, you can celebrate the gifts and talents and strength of your wives and the women in your lives. When you lead well and women are educated in Christ and they have gifts to teach, to lead, then you get to celebrate that. We're not intimidated by that. We don't try and shut it down. We applaud that. Well done. Oh, I love it. Go. What would it say if the church was to say, yeah, women are gifted, or she obviously has gifts and talents, but in the church she can't lead? No way. Like, biblically speaking, that the Bible would be communicate to the right, that's oppressive. What? Does that line up with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians? Does it line up with what Paul says about women in Ephesians? No, it does not. So we have to know the context here. My wife has a master's degree in counseling. She's a brilliant counselor. I get to step back and say, well done. You do that well. You lead well. My wife is a strong woman. When she speaks up, I listen. I'm proud of her. Proud of her. Because she follows Christ. The general superintendent, which would be like the president of our denomination, is Dr. Joanne Lyon. Dr. Joanne Lyon, a woman. She oversees the whole denomination. Just a couple weeks ago, she was invited by President Obama to be there to speak to him and welcome the Pope. Very few people were there. She was one of them, invited by the president. She is a woman who is gifted. She is a strong leader. She started World Hope. She's done incredible things, incredible things. And I can't imagine God saying that's a sin because Paul said in Timothy that... uh, No, 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 no. 
She's doing amazing things, and we sit back and go, well done, because she's following the lead of Christ in her life with the gifts and talents she has. And when we understand this text in context, it's saying, if you are not educated, then yeah, you're not going to speak up. If you're going to spew false doctrines and goofy philosophies, then no, you're not going to teach. So men educate well, teach well, and then celebrate women well. Because as one Old Testament scholar brilliantly says, if you only have one gender at the table, then you only have half the image of God. In Genesis 1, it says, Humanity was made in the image of God. Both man and woman is the way Genesis 1 reads. Genesis 2, when we get to more of the story narrative, that's when it says, and woman was created out of man and all that. Yep, but it first said men and women were created in the image of God. Right? So to say only one gender can be at the table, you're missing half of the image of God. We live in an age where we have more information than ever before at our fingertips. Archaeologists have given us more concrete evidence to teach the Bible and to teach it well. Teach sound doctrine, to know it well. It's available to us. And our culture, our culture out there is in desperate need for Christians to live and teach well. Should it not be that the outside world would at least say, that family following Jesus, I can't argue with the fact that that's an amazing family. With amazing kids, amazing wife, amazing husband, like, whoa, that family, the way they serve, they live, the way they give and care for, the way they love God and love their neighbor. I might not even agree what they believe in, but I can't argue with the fact that their lives are worth emulating. Should be said of the church, the church championing women, well done, you are strong, you go girl, if you will. So verse 15, and then we can wrap it up. <laughs> but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now we get to this, and then people are thinking, oh, so women are saved in childbirth. Does that line up with the rest of Scripture? Does it say that women, that people would be saved through having babies? Uh, now, the word here, and it's important, the word saved is the word sozo. And the word sozo means to keep safe, first and foremost, or be preserved. What this text is saying, and because it goes on to say if they continue in faith or faithfulness, love and holiness, what it is saying is, like you and I, we need to be rescued every single day from ourselves from our selfishness, from our ways of trying to drift off course that we might be. And so childbearing, it's saying the, the pain of giving birth to a child. And women, is it all humbling to give birth? Is that humbling at all? So all he's saying is it reminds you that there is someone bigger than you who is in control and it's not you. And oh, it's God. This God. Because who is the goddess of fertility? Artemis. So what is this sticking it to? Artemis. No, no, no. God is the God of childbearing. God is the God of life and creation. This God, our God, Yahweh. So what he is saying here is let childbearing 
humble you and remind you who is God. May it kind of align you back to the heart of Christ. And, and we need that all each day, do we not? In some way, somehow, maybe it's a nudge from a neighbor, a word from a spouse, and our kids will quickly drag us back to reality. I have three sons. They do so often. So this, this text, my friends, is about being rooted in Christ in the midst of a culture that is living far from Christ. Chasing all sorts of idols and teachings that pad the pocket. They do things that pad their pocket, grow their social status, but it deteriorates the character and soul. Does this sound familiar? This is about the church being centered, the church being centered on Christ. The family being rooted in and run by Christ. Men leading well, which means women are empowered to be all that God created them to be. That's what this text is encouraging, challenging, and affirming. That we would be the church centered in Christ, and that leads everything. And so if you ever especially ladies, have ever been put down, put aside because of something like this. I'm so sorry. You were created by God. You have gifts and talents. And when you offer those gifts and talents back to God, he will multiply, use them, grow you, and we, I, will be better for that. And I thank God for that and for you. Can we pray? Father God, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for speaking truth into our lives. God, what is from you, may it plant itself deep in our souls. May we leave here in conversation and wrestling with it, and may it transform our hearts so that we would honor you, God, with our gifts, our talents, our families, our spouses, our kids, they would lift them to you. Educate them in you and who you are. And then celebrate them living and following in you. It's a gift. And we say thank you for that. God, here's your church. May you empower them today. May you speak love into their hearts as they go. And may your grace and your peace go with them all. And the church said, Amen.